I think I succeeded last week in confusing you all, um, so I'm going to try to do better this week. But let me uh, uh, say that the the subject of last week about the um, the uh, the both and versus the either or indeed is a difficult subject, and yet one that cannot um, ever be downplayed. That both um, truths are are um, are necessary. That is that God is utterly sovereign and man is morally responsible. That's what we looked at last week. Tonight we close off uh, Romans chapter 9 and, and to try to just uh, to achieve a bit of clarity, let me just show you kind of uh, contextually where we are. Um, Paul has introduced the whole idea of Jews and Gentiles in verse 24. He makes this audacious claim, actually that's not the right word, this, this startling claim in verse 27, when he says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That is, that is shocking to a set of Jewish ears, that uh, only a remnant, only a small portion of Israel will ultimately end up being redeemed. And then he closes off this whole chapter with this, these statements in verses 30 through 33, um, talking about how Gentiles have attained it. He says in verse 30 that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, the righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel... Now, again, we, he's been talking about Israel. He mentioned them up in verse 27. But Israel, the, the ones that you would have thought would have really been just a treasure to God, um, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed. That is... The outsiders are in and the insiders are out. They did not um, succeed in reaching that law. And then he opens verse 32, and this is our text. Why? That is, why will Israel not attain? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and, an, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what he does in verses 32 and 33 is explain exactly why such a few, such a small portion of Israel will ultimately be saved. And it is, uh, the, the reason being is that they pursued it wrongly. They pursued it as if it were based on performance, as if it was based on, 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 uh, on human standards, and they did not pursue it by faith. And then he makes the statement, they stumbled. They stumble over the stumbling stone. Um, at the root, the, the root cause of Israel not being saved is that they were ultimately offended by Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. He was an offense to them. He was a, um, a scandal to Jews. Um, and this, this whole idea of the, this rock or this stone of stumbling, it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament as well in the New. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, there's a place where, where, where this same idea is mentioned. But guys, the, the point I would have you see or, or at least make clear or hopefully, is that, that people stumble, they reject the gospel today just like for the same reasons that Israel did. Because the idea of a divine Son of God, the idea of a, 
of God taking on flesh is an offense. It's, um, they don't understand. Israel didn't then and people don't today. The vast majority of people today do not understand why they can't save themselves. Why is it that God is not pleased with somebody who is as nice as I am? And as religious and and upstanding as somebody like me. All that business that you're talking about, that's offensive to me. Because a free salvation offends a proud man. The only thing he understands and the only thing that so many, much of mankind understands today is merit. Um, a self-righteousness. Now guys, in response to that, let me, let me just kind of summarize this, these uh, last two verses with three little observations. Number one, our relationship to God is determined purely and entirely by your attitude, by our attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ, or about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say nothing else matters. Now, assuming for a moment that we have the right Jesus Christ, the one, the, the Son of God and the Virgin Child, or the, the Child of Virgin Mary, it, assuming that we've got the right one, nothing else matters. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So one's relationship to God is ultimately determined simply by your understanding of who he is, what he's done, his life and his work, his, his, his person and his work. He, he, that is, he the person, is the acid test of, of all religion, guys. It is he alone that matters. Um, and there are only two possible attitudes people have towards him today. There are only two, there is only one division of all mankind, those who stumble over him and those who don't. Uh, and yet, everything about him is offensive. Um, it, it was to the Jewish audience, it is today. Guys, um, Randy Ray found this thing. Uh, I don't even know where he found it, but it was a... I, I think I mentioned it last week, this Richard Dawkins lecture to uh, some college someplace, and he forwarded it over to me, and, it was, and, I, and I, um, I watched it. It was a little YouTube thing, but it was a lecture by uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a... Uh, he's a Brit and, and brilliant, and a, 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 he's not just an opponent. He's a hater. He's a hater. And you ought, to, you ought to hear some of the ways that he that he talks about the God that you and I say we love. You ought to hear the contempt in his voice and how he would describe this bloodthirsty, jealous, just on and on he would go. And then the audience, I mean, it was one thing for him to say that, and then for the audience to, <laughs> I mean, just erupt in applause as this man absolutely denigrated. I mean, not just in, 
well, I don't believe in God. I mean, <laughs> that was, that would have been nice compared to what this guy was saying. Vicious attacks. Because this gospel is offensive to a proud man. Everything about Jesus Christ is offensive. His, his, his virgin birth. <laughs> we know how babies get made. You fools! You fools! Believe something like that virgin birth malarkey. His, his lack of pedigree. You know, the, the, the scripture says not that Jesus didn't, didn't have a good reputation or that he had a, um, a widely known reputation. It says he had no reputation. Jesus made no reputation. He had no re- Well, that's, that's offensive. That whole idea that this one who has no reputation would claim to be the Savior of men. That's offensive. His claims about himself, he who is persecuted for my sake, that's, that's, that's galling. Um, the, the things that he didn't do were as offensive as the things that he did do. He was supposed to come and deliver Rome from, or deliver Israel from Rome. He didn't do that. His, his death on a cross. How can you call that God? It's offensive. His message, his person, his work, his miracles, his virgin birth, what he did do, what he didn't do, his lack of pedigree, his lack of approval by the religious institution, all of it. All of it was offensive and, and the bulk of Israel stumbled over it. And so does the bulk of mankind today. Why is he, why is he such an offense? Because he exposes everything that's the ugliest about us. He exposes self-confidence and pride and self-righteousness. There's nothing. I, I think... I think that the, the thing that is so offensive about him is that he, he strikes at the very root of man's ugliness, his greatest ugliness, and that is man's own pride. Guys, um, I'm, I'd love to read. This is, um, this is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And if you haven't read, you know, C.S. Lewis probably has 120 books in print. And, you know, I can understand about half of them. Um, the other 60 I can. I, I don't even know how. But this one I can, and you can. Uh, this is not a hard book. But it's, it's kind of an introduction, a great place to start with C.S. Lewis. But um, he has a chapter. It's only four pages, and I'm telling you, I should read the whole thing. But I'm not. I'm not, I promise. Um, but it's, the title of the chapter is The Great Sin. The Great Sin. And I'm just going to read some snatches out of it. He said... Um, I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. That is, you know, it's, when people come into my office and they want to talk about problems that they're having, you know, they'll talk, well, you know, I've got, um, um, I got a problem with lust. I got a problem with uh, materialism. Or, you know, I'm, I lose my temper. I got a problem with anger. But nobody, nobody sits down in my office and says, I am eat up. With pride. Eat up with it. 
and occasionally a Christian will make such a claim, but that's what, that's what he's calling the great sin. Um, the vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite it is, in Christian morals is called humility. Um, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Listen to this. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You want to know why the gospel offends? Because it strikes at that part of man that is the complete anti-state of, of, of mind. Or anti-God state of mind. It strikes at his pride. Now, now, what you, um, now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. The pleasure. The pleasure that I get of thinking that I am better. And then the Gospel comes along and says, you are wicked. And I'm telling you, people rail against it. And it doesn't seem to be getting much better. Just a couple more things. Um, the sexual impulse may drive two men into competition if they both want the same girl. But that is only by accident. They might just as likely have wanted two different girls. But a proud man will take your girl from you, not because he wants her, but just to prove himself that he is better, that he is a better man than you. It is the greed for more pleasure. It is pride. The wish to be richer than some other rich man, and still more the wish for power. For of course, power is what pride really enjoys. There is nothing, there is nothing that makes a man feel so superior to others as being able to move them about like toy soldiers. So why do we want to achieve? Why do we want the corner office? Why do we want the titles? So that we can move people around like toy soldiers. This is such a wonderful statement. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And thus, men hate Him. 
That's enough. The real black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. <laughs> Guys, all I'm saying is, why did, why did Israel stumble? Why, why, why did she have such a problem with this God-provided Savior? It was because He exposed men at the center of their sin the desire to think myself good enough. And not only that, better. And the gospel is an absolute frontal assault on that one notion. This, uh, this statement that he makes in verse 33, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, then we can also say those who don't believe in him will be put to shame. What rich words. Those who stumble over this rock will be put Guys, the Lord Jesus Christ is one of two things to every, one, to every man on the face of the planet. He is either the rock on whom we build our whole hope and confidence of eternal life. Our, our rest, our confidence, our, our dependence is placed on that rock. Or He is the rock over which men stumble. Examine Every other religious system that exists in the world today and it appeals to the very thing that Christianity assaults. Every world religion encourages men to perform well enough to consider themselves acceptable. Except this one. All stumble over this one. Now, guys, I got 12 minutes left, and I want to do something with you um, as we close. What I want to do is leave you. You know, everybody was um, uh, oh so, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, th there were some who were oh so excited to get to Romans chapter 9 and with all of its um, election and the predestination stuff that's crammed in there. Um, and we've covered it, and I hope, I hope there's a little bit of more clarity in, in those issues. Uh, if you want more, you're going to have to sign up for my systematics class. But um, what I want to do is leave you with four impressions, four kind of general lessons that I think you should take away from Romans chapter 9. Four things that, that are just, they're just broad, general lessons. They're, not, they're, they're a little bit specific, but just things that kind of leap out at me when you... Um, when you study Romans 9, here's the first one. The value of the Old Testament. Did you notice how much the Apostle Paul used the Old Testament to establish his argument and prove his arguments? Guys, this is, a, this is an interesting observation. I think it was Lloyd-Jones who made it. But um, the early church, the first century church, 
um, only had the Old Testament. That's all they had. And that church was primarily comprised of Gentiles. That Old Testament was a Jewish book. I mean, and the church was Gentile. The, the Gentile church, the early church could have looked at that Old Testament and said, well, that, that thing is, that's, that's, uh, that's for them Jews. That's good as our own. And yet they knew better than that. They knew of the great value of the Old Testament. Gang, grace is as... I don't want to say it's as obvious, but I can say it is as present. Grace is as present in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Now, it may not be as obvious, and it's not as obvious because you and I read the Old Testament through eyes that have been enlightened by the New. And so, you know, we... We, we find things in the Old Testament because we know things that we've read in the New. But it's there. And long before uh, the Gospel of Mark was written, the Gospel of Mark is considered pretty much the first book in the New Testament. Long before that was written, where were people learning about grace? Over here. In this book that, that gets so neglected by the 21st century church. One of the things that is striking about the arguments of Paul in Romans 9, it is utter dependence on the Old Testament. That's number one. Um, another thing that stands out to me, guys, in, in this whole thing was the kinds of things that we cannot afford to rely on in terms of our whole relationship with God. Um, which seem to be so frequently used. Things that we cannot afford to rely on. Number one, family. You know, Jacob and Esau coming from the same family. That, that whole idea of... Um, I could have swore I wrote in black. I'd written in black, but, uh, but anyway, it's green. Um, th- that's the first thing that you cannot afford to rely on. I mean, if anybody could have relied on family connections... It would have been Esau. But uh, that's not something, that's not a mistake you should make. Another thing that you cannot afford to rely on is your religious ceremony. That's what Judaism did on, on circumcision and um, in, in the 21st century uh, baptism. It is not, the religious ceremony is a not, it's not reliable. And, and the other thing that I think you might be somewhat shocked by this, but is that you cannot rely on your faith. Guys, I went over this about three weeks ago and tried to make it as clear as I know how. And um, unfortunately, you're stuck with me, but... But gang, it is not faith that saves you. We do not put our faith in faith. It is not our faith that saves us, ladies and gentlemen. It is the finished, accomplished work in Jesus Christ. And it is faith 
that only allows us to lay hold of His merit. But I am not saved. I am not a saved man because I believe. I am a saved man because Jesus Christ paid it all. The grounds of my standing is not my faith. It is not a faith in faith. It's a faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Judaism failed in all three of those. And and continues to do so. Um, the other, the other thing that I that I that I would have you see that would, that I think you should draw out of Romans chapter nine is the uh, is the constant need that we have. Maybe not the constant need, but the regular need of examining ourselves. Um, you know, Peter says, make your calling and election sure. But guys, I, I, um, I'm not sure I should say this. Um, and that really makes my wife nervous when I say that. But um, um, I want you to know something. That in the course of teaching Romans chapter 9, in this two semesters, I have had people in the, just in Romans 9 come up to me and say all the wrong things about their confidence. Glaringly so. Not an opinion. Uh, glaringly, glaring mistakes. Like, I've tried to do the best I can. That's in this bunch in this place with an interest in Romans 9 and people looking at me and saying, well, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm safe with God is because I'm trying to do the best I can. Sit right here. Right here. Guys, what, I mean, there is, Peter pleads with us To make our calling and election sure. And I think that's one of the things that is so terrifying, to, not terrifying, so going to be so startling for Israel. And of, and of all things, would you not have thought that Esau or somebody who a part of Israel was all okay? There is the need for a regular on the part of us all. Then the final thing, just a just a general lesson uh, out of Romans chapter 9 that I think you should walk away with, and it's this. The danger of misreading this book because of our own prejudiced eyes. Seeing what we want to see without seeing what, it's, what is there. That's terrifying. To be a student of this book, as was Israel, and to miss, by the way, they're still studying it. And they're still missing it. To come to this book 
and to miss its message because I have brought to this book my own prejudices and biases and, and unwillingness to be taught. And by my so doing, miss what it says. What could be more tragic than that? So, those are lessons I hope that will be profitable for you in Romans 9, and I hope Romans 9 itself has benefited you as well. That's great. Our Father, I, I pray that what we, um, what we do with this book will please you, the way we handle it, the way we study it, the way we respond to it, Lord. It's not enough to know it, because that's never to be our goal. Our, um, Father, we, every person in this room knows so much more than we live. And the more we know, the more guilty we become because we know it and have not yet um, fleshed it out in our lifestyle. So, Father, forgive us. It is another reminder of what a need we have for a Savior. Oh, bless God that there is a Savior for a sinner as wicked as I. And I pray, O oh God, that more and more we'll come to delight in, the, in a message that talks about the full, free, radical salvation that's offered us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in His name. Amen. Thanks and good night.